season recap show during this show we will touch on the context of the whole season perhaps clemson and the country's best ever and also hand out our watson's awards for the fourth consecutive year fellas good to be back how we doing good man uh it's nice to do some of these shows where we're not recapping a game or anything like that you don't have to do you don't have to go back and watch anything or do as take as many notes or anything like that you just kind of get to come in here and then talk off of pure emotion and passion and just the, the feeling of such a great season. Yeah. There's so many great seniors uh, from this class, both I guess redshirt seniors and the, and the true seniors that it would just feel wrong to not have a, a moment in, a, in an episode to reflect on their achievements. Absolutely. So that's kind of what this is. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, we will focus on this year, but absolutely for those that have had a hell of a run and our best run ever, we definitely want to touch on their careers overall. Um, last week, we did the National Championship Game Recap. For those who have not listened to that, I encourage you to go check it out. Um, but we also did touch on a little bit in passing the context of this season. And today will really be about a double click on the season itself um, and this team. Um, in addition to taking an opportunity to hand out what we call our Watson's Awards, looking across a number of different categories and calling out some of the best performances, some of the best season-long contributions and accolades. Um, so it's always fun for us to kind of take a look back and reflect and really celebrate what was an amazing year um, in, a, in the middle of an amazing era as Clemson fans. Well, and the storyline for this year was quite different than anything we've experienced before um, with the whole Kelly Bryant situation at the beginning of the year and how all that went down. And of course, as, as soon as he decides to transfer and Trevor Lawrence becomes a starter, he immediately gets hurt and knocked out of the Syracuse game. And that worst case scenario, your worst fear um, happened right there immediately in that first game. And it's like, oh, crap, there goes the season. Yeah, and we'll we'll touch on kind of the phases of the year coming up, but I feel like there were several moments in this year, particularly that play and that, that time frame where I think you could question, was this team destined for a championship or not? And um, it, it was not decided overnight. This team did not go wire to wire as your like expected champion favorite. Uh, but I think it was the building of that, that solidified this team and, you know, kind of um, set us on a course for what was um, a 15 and 0 run. One of the similarities between this team and, and 16, and they're not that, and they're like composition and the players, it's a little different. I'd say the style of the, of the two teams are different, but they both saved their best for last. And at, it's at one point in the year for this 18 team, it did not resemble a championship squad at all, in my, in my opinion, early on. And I think a little bit can be the same can be said for the 16 team. But yeah, by the end, they're not just like a championship team, but an all time team. So, well, and I think what this this season does is reinforce the fact that it's okay not to look like a championship team coming out of the gates, especially when you're just so much more talented than everybody else anyways. Um, again, we saw it in 16. You know, the offense really didn't kick it into high gear until later in the season. We've been worried all season about that. Deshaun Watts was throwing interceptions. You know, what was going on? And this year, obviously, the you know, the quarterback situation has something to do with that. You have a couple games where the secondary is an issue. Um, but yeah, they really tied it all together and it, it didn't, whereas in, in 15 and 16, um, and even 17 for that matter, you didn't really get a really good feeling about this team until later in the year, but this one was very shortly after Trevor Lawrence took over, I think. Yeah. One of the questions I want to lead us into talking about this team and putting it in context was, I think the, the coaching and what it starts at the top, some of the decisions that Dabo had to make that were not the most popular at the time, or people questioned his approach to the, the quarterback situation in particular. Um, I think we continuously are reminded at how good of a job he does and his staff does and how blessed we are to have so much continuity. Um, and it really starts at the top with Dabo. And what's great about that is we had a lot of opportunities this year to reflect on a decade of Dabo, him hitting his 10th year in the program, um, since being hired on full-time with the demise of the Tommy Bowden era. So uh, definitely this season had a little bit more of a special angle when you think about Dabo in particular. Does it seem like to you guys that he's been here 10 years as the head right. coach? Seems a little longer, maybe 15. See, for but, me, it seems shorter for some reason. I, mean, I, I don't know. You could kind of break Dabo's tenure down into 
at least two phases, if not, if not probably more than three, that. probably yeah. three in terms of just competing for natties and then like the, the definite rise and then uncertain beginning. There was the whole, I mean, probably his middle era was the Taj Boyd era. Yeah, for sure. To me, it just seems like forever ago that we were, you know, we had the CJ Spiller team. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that just, it seems like ancient history. It's also forever ago that we were losing games. For sure. Um, well, with that, why don't we talk about uh, at least the beginning of um, our recap on the season and kind of put this team into context. So 2018 Tigers went 15-0, and fifth state title in a row, fourth ACC title in a row, fourth consecutive college football playoff appearance, three out of four natty appearances, two out of three na- national championships. Really, guys, only a handful of programs have enjoyed as good a run throughout a four-year period. Um, and aside from w- what I call the Alabama golden decade that we're in the middle of, or really at the end of a decade, uh, in my lifetime, you're basically talking about Blue Bloods during their best runs ever, like Florida and USC in the aughts, Nebraska in the 90s, Miami in the late 80s. That's the company that this program and this team is now a part of. And to be honest, when I look back and think on those teams, uh, we're not done. We're in a much better spot than they are in terms of where they ended their runs with you know, NCAA turmoil in the case of Miami, with um, a legendary coach moving away in the case of Nebraska, and with controversy and departures ending the USC and Florida runs. So in my mind, you know, Clemson can be on its way to approaching what Alabama has done. Certainly a lot of things need to go right, but um, and we'll touch on this toward the end of the show. Things are looking good in terms of the future. Yeah, I don't, I think we're still kind of on the rise too, really. If you look at the recruiting and you look at how many true freshmen and sophomores contributed to this dominating performance over what was considered going in to be possibly one of the greatest teams of all time, um, I think one of the most, uh, one of the more compelling statistics is that um, this is an NCAA record, but for the eighth consecutive year, um, Clemson has matched or finished their preseason rank, um, or matched or, or, or finished above their preseason rank uh, for eight years in a row. So that's absolutely amazing to me. There's, I mean, and, and it's really hard to do when you start the season ranked number two. There's only one spot to move up. Um, so we'll see if we start. I imagine we're not going to be uh, number one heading into next year just because um, turnover on defense. Turnover in Alabama will always get the the benefit of the doubt there. And, you know, they're returning great players, too. And they were a really good football team. I think if we play that game 10 times, that is the only time that it's a blowout like that. So, um, but we'll see. One thing I was I was thinking about um, with this with this team, well, for one, you talked about Florida earlier on, totally. And I remember it, it was when I was in school when, T, when Tebow was, was doing his thing at Florida and they won two championships in, I believe, three years. Is yep. that right? So I, I remember thinking if Clemson could ever be like that. And and I know Bama had their run and it was longer and it was it's it won more championships. But something about Florida during that time just seemed more, I don't know, it was more inspiring, whereas is uh, Alabama has been more like a machine, um, like a factory, like we talked about last, last episode. So, you know, lo and behold, here we are. We've done the same thing. We are like just on that same on that same page. Um, the one thing about where we're where we're at right now and why, why I think it's hard to predict more championships and more sustained success is just the Clemson experiment. It's something new, and I think it'll be interesting to see how how it goes because we're not Bama. We're not every position's not a five star recruit. So there's, it's it's been, it's built on like character and program fits, and and I think high uh, positional value across like quarterback and certain positions like wide wide receiver. So I don't know I don't know if we can 
continue to do it like with Bama, with Georgia coming up. But I don't know. It'll be it'll be interesting to watch. Well, it's like everything else in college football is, you know, one team innovates and they they catch fire and get have success, and then other people start to catch on. You know, uh, imitation is the sincerest uh, form of flattery. Well, and what ended that Florida run was Alabama was Alabama's rise and emphasis on defense and running offenses. The irony in it all, though, is the reason Alabama was touted is, is probably possibly the greatest team ever and why many didn't really give Clemson a chance to win this game is because of their shift in focus to a high-powered dynamic offense, and uh, that did not turn out to be a factor. Um, the offense didn't score any in the second half and the defense was fallible. Well, and what led Nick Saban to have a change of heart? Three years ago, he was, I forget in what forum, he was basically saying how the spread offense is bad for athletes and bad for football. What changed? Clemson changed. And I think other high-powered offense first programs. Auburn was kicking his butt back then. That's why he didn't like it so much. I mean, Iron Bowl. It was just the Iron Bowl in 2013 that I think might have led to that, but which was the kick six game and everything else. But anyway, I, well, maybe he was just getting bored, you know, winning those low scoring games. Yeah, it could be. I do. I do believe two consecutive, you know, games into the thirties and forties against Clemson did the trick as well. Um, but as far as this team goes, guys, we touched on a little bit at the end of the last show. Was this team the best ever in college football history? Um, this team was ranked no worse than fourth all year basically second in the country 11 weeks of the season and only hit number one after beating Bama. Uh, we finished the year S&P number two. I believe we were number one on defense, number four on offense. And yes, we did demolish the number one team. So you would think we would achieve the number one in S&P. Um, but really the system's not set up to overreact to any single game performance. And Alabama didn't have that bad of a statistical game against Clemson. Well, Michigan State actually ended up as the number one defense. Um so I, I would question whether or not S&P overreacted to their uh, 9-7 or 10-7 loss or something like that in their bowl game um, because they got the credit for not giving up many points. But, you know, it's, it seems like an overreaction there. Like, how does Michigan State end up as number one defense? How do they jump us? <clears throat> yeah. When we hold Bama to 16. To 16, right. When, and coming in, we were number one. I mean, again, there's a reason the national championship is not handed out based on S&P based on what you see on the field. But yeah, that's an interesting quirk for sure. Um, but in any, in any rate, um, this team certainly had the statistical merit to be uh, considered one of the best teams of all time. Cody, I know you were looking before the show at just the actual numerical value of S&P Plus that, that Clemson and Alabama had both achieved and putting that into comparison against some of both teams' best of previous years. I don't know if you had necessarily a readout on that. Um, but when I look at this team... Really, there was only one opponent that went above 26 points on our defense. That was South Carolina. And then nine opponents, this defense held nine opponents to 10, 10 points or fewer. Only four opponents on our schedule, though, finished ranked. And I think that's something that um, doubters and naysayers will put in the negative column against this team in terms of being the best ever. Um, and really, we won a conference where the Coastal winner had gone 7-7, seven and seven, which in itself is an insane record in any year with seven and seven is your mark. And so, yeah, maybe a lot of people will use that against us, but I would say quite the opposite. Maybe it's even harder um, to go up and annihilate 
good teams like Notre Dame and Alabama when you haven't played good competition all year long. I mean, that says a lot to the discipline and the preparedness uh, from this coaching staff and these players. Um, you know, you can talk about being battle-tested all you want, and you could say Clemson wasn't really battle-tested. Well, we proved that not to be a factor. Also, I think from a motivation standard standpoint, continuing to beat teams by 20-plus throughout the year when you're not playing a rigorous schedule and a gauntlet of a schedule, that's typically where malaise sets in and where um, I think this coaching staff, again, deserves a lot of credit, not only in keeping the entire team focused, but also in their strategy to play a lot of players. Well, and I think that probably helps keep the focus because you have those guys on the sidelines that they don't care who the opponent is and how bad they are. Like they're ready to go in the game and they know they're going to get in the game. And I think when you have that, when that becomes um, systematic, where the the entire team takes that approach from the starters down to the four string guys, I think that probably um, fosters more of a culture of that focus and attention, despite all of uh, the distractions or the lack of, the lack of hype around big time opponents or big games or anything like that. I see it as essentially manufacturing competition. You know, if you're not necessarily getting competition on the other side of the field that can hang with the starters, almost bringing it to where the second string and the third string uh, can get, get a good level of competition for themselves to develop. Well, and I think that's where you see Dabo come out with the Roy bus thing and all that. And, you know, for the rest of us, we're like, right, come on, Dabo, we know we're not on the Roy bus. But, you know, he uses that stuff as, as motivation, and you have to get creative and find that stuff wherever you can. And you know he's going to have some type of quote every year. I'm looking forward to see what he comes up with next year to try to, to tell this team in the world that they're not one of the two best teams in the country. Yeah, and slogans for T-shirts, basically. Yeah. It's all about. Um, well, there's tons of angles, and, you know, in perpetuity, people are going to pick apart the question of 2018 Clemson versus some of the best teams of all time. I want to ask you guys, though, before we move on to – the actual season itself was this Clemson's best team ever. And, you know, neither I was alive during the 81 season, but, uh, barely, barely, and certainly not able to put that team in that era into context. So what I'm essentially looking at is since Clemson's rise to national prominence, do we believe that this was the most complete best team and a way that I've kind of started to look at this, I mean, I want to get your guys like overall take, but really when we think about this era coming into this year, the best offense of a Clemson team, I think we had to look at the 2016 offense, the team that won the national championship, Deshaun Watson's final year. You had Mike Williams, Jordan Leggett, Artavis Scott, and Wayne Gallman's final year. Um, really a high powered offense uh, did a great job that year. And on the flip side, when you think about defenses, really the team that stands out there, you know, despite a great defense in 2017, 2016, this year and 2015, really was that 2014 season. Uh, the last run, last draw for Vic Beasley, Grady Jarrett, um, and a great back seven as well. So, you know, I've certainly got some numbers breaking all those teams down, but Cody, how are, how do you calibrate the 2018 team in the context of maybe the last five, 16? Well, I'll start with the offense and comparing 16 to 18, and not to go player by player, but if you just kind of just do a quick high-level look, at running back, I think Etienne's better than than Gallman. Um, I think Mike Williams might be the best receiver, but I think the combination of T. Higgins, um, Justin Ross, Hunter Renfro. But granted, we did have Hunter Renfro uh, in the sixteen version. But um, I think the wide receivers is a net positive. Um, I think the offensive line is slightly better, and then it gets down to quarterback, and it's I mean that's that's a hard one to call. But the the championship version of Trevor Lawrence 
um, and the throws that he could make, um, it, it's it's up there with Deshaun Watson and both of his championship performances. So um, just looking at it offensively, um, season to season, 16 was better, but the, the kind of the high mark of the 18, the championship, but I guess you could say the Notre Dame game as well, I think rivaled the 16. And it might be a little bit better, maybe a little bit more complete. Yeah, and I... And there is a difference between those two teams. Um, the offensive line certainly had something to prove in, in, throughout that season and in that game, and that's where they really showed up, and they were just tough, like tough in the trenches. And I think this year's offensive line is overall as a unit more talented and just generally a better offensive line, at least when it comes to pass protection. We didn't get much going in the run game, but we didn't either back in the 2016 game. It's, I agree with you on the wide receivers. I think Justin Ross and T. Higgins may ultimately end up being better than Mike Williams. Now, probably not much because Mike Williams is a phenomenal wide receiver. I think Artavis Scott probably has a nod over Mari Rogers at this point. Um, and Hunter Renfro is Hunter Renfro. Um, and I, I think I agree with you on the running backs. I think ETN's star potential is much higher. Um, but I think the two positions between Gallman and Deshaun Watson in that game was they're just their grit and their willpower and the fact that Deshaun Watson had to come back in a game and make clutch throws down the stretch. Clemson was down 14 to nothing. Like it was just a completely different storyline of the game. So we've never seen Trevor Lawrence have to come back from anything, right? Uh, he just gets big leads and blows people's out. And Deshaun Watson had to be clutch. It had to drive us down the field with how, how much ever time left on the clock. And it wasn't just him. It was clutch plays from Leggett and, and Mike Williams and, um, and Hunter Renfro, of course. So, um, yeah, it's I just like to step back and instead of maybe trying to compare those apples to apples, just appreciate uh, the differences in both of those teams and the kind of the different scenarios and, and environments they were operating in. Yeah, and we can zoom out a little bit before we dive back into the offense or the defense calibration that we want to do. Um, I would say from a satisfaction standpoint, and I'm going to use the word relief, there's no better champion than 2016. Yeah, as a holistic team. Um, coming into that, having lost in 2015, which felt like it was a miracle season and everything was lining up, and then to lose, doubt started to creep in, especially with the start of that 2016 team. Of are we ever going to get over that hump? Uh, Deshaun's going to leave this year. We're going to lose a lot on offense, and maybe some guys on defense will go to the league. Um, so to have that win, I would call that possibly the most important Clemson team of our lifetime in this era. Um, but I think. Perhaps the 2018 team was a more dominant team overall, yeah, particularly on offense. I, I think that's accurate. Uh, you know, the the storyline between the 15 and 16 teams, most of those, all those guys coming back, Sean Watson coming back, and yeah, you're right. This is like our last opportunity, our last chance that Sean Watson's going to go pro. Um, so to have that made that game just so much more exciting and that outcome so much more exciting. The first Clemson, second Clemson championship, the the first one in 35 years. Um, one with one second left. One second well. left. The, the throw to Hunter Renfro, you know, the Ben Bulwer storylines and everything. Um, this one, to a certain extent, you could pull some of those narratives out. You had the, you know, three guys on the defensive line come back. Mitch Hyatt, Kendall Joseph come back um, to try to win another championship. The quarterback was different, so that was a different scenario. But I think there are some similarities there. But, you know, after the 15 team, we knew we could hang. Um, after the 16 game we're like all right we've done it look at the recruiting we're gonna do this again 17 was a lull we were all actually kind of surprised we went undefeated in the season ended up back in the playoff but honestly the end result one loss but yeah or one loss sorry um all good uh the one loss to what syracuse yeah. yeah um 
But ultimately, the outcome losing to Bama was kind of what we probably expected. Um, this year's team was, we know we have the potential to be great. How is it going to play out? Are the right coaching decisions going to be made? Turns out they were. Um, and here we are as champions again, and it still looks bright moving forward. It, and by the way, in defense of the 2016 offense, um, that the probably the best unit overall, probably the last five years in college football, was that Alabama 2016 defense. They were just unbelievably good. Um, so that Deshaun Watson had to had to slay the had to slay a dragon there. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, this this Alabama defense this year was a shell of its former self. Absolutely. So I mean, Cody, for me that that point, and um, I would I would say you guys didn't touch on necessarily the tight end comps and, and you know differences between these teams. What we got out of Jordan Leggett, I I, I think in my in my gut, I kind of err on the side of the 2016 offense being better, but these are very close and the dominant fashion in which this team at its peak peaked at the right moment and dominated a good Notre Dame defense and a, and a very good Alabama defense. There are no 2016 Alabama defense to your point. Um, but I still think, you know, this is an offense you can hang your hat on. I would love to see those offenses go at each other in the spring game opposite sides <laughs> with a time machine. Yeah. And a cloning machine get Hunter Renfro on both sides. Exactly. Um, well, Hunter does have a little brother on the team, so looks <laughs> looks similar to him. Right. Um, how about defenses, guys? 2014 against 2018. Um, I will say the 2018 team only had one opponent go over 26 points. That was the U of SC. A little joke jab at the rebranding of the Gamecocks uh, there. And uh, the 2014 team actually had three teams go above 26 um, in Georgia, NC State, and Georgia Tech that year. Um, the 2018 Clemson defense held nine opponents to 10 points or less, and that included Notre Dame. 2014 squad only had five, uh, which was Oklahoma. So the the context there is the 2014 team was had a horrible offense on the other side of the ball, and they were grinding out every game of the year, um, including like the Georgia game of, uh, where we couldn't get a first down in the second half. So there's that. And then this year it was just, you know, we were just trying to put in the second, third stringers to keep everyone healthy. I, I think ultimately though, the, the 14 defense had, it was better through and through like um, from the defensive line to the back end. Whereas the advantage that we, we had uh, up front in the, on the 18 defensive line was, I think puts the 18 defense slightly above the 14 defense would be my opinion. Yeah. Well, when you just look at the numbers, um, we led the nation for the first time in scoring defense um, with just over 13 points a game. So that was the first time that's happened in program history. Um, and so, yeah, I think that I would give the nod to this 2018 defense for sure. Just how completely dominant they were all year. It, to your point about grinding stuff out, those guys on that 2014 defense were uh, several of them were up in 800, 900 snap counts for games. And you've, and I think one of the reasons why this defense is probably better is because it was just so much more deep. The fact that you're able to plug in these other guys and still maintain that elite level of success. And even there was very little garbage time scoring. There was, but it wasn't, didn't come in chunks. Um, so I would just say you know, all around, this was probably a more well-rounded unit. Even the secondary, which we thought was going to be a weakness, just the, the way that they were able to progress throughout the season. Um, just, I, yeah, I think just goes to show how good of a defense this was. And I think when we talk about comparing defenses in the modern era, or at least in our lifetime, Clemson football, I think one thing that's going to be easy for us to 
uh, pass over is the 1990 defense, which is considered one of, or if not the best Clemson defense of all time. But, you know, I was eight, Cody, you were four or something like that. Tully, what, nine years old? Ten. Ten? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, no frame of reference for us on that one because I was just getting into Clemson football at that time and I didn't know anything about stats or how good defenses were. Georgia's heck won the natty that year, so just different era altogether. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gus Malzahn was not a, a head football coach at that time. Um, yeah. Georgia Tech. No, I just mean like there were no like spread offenses. Ah, I see. Yeah, no, no Chad Morris's. Right. Very predictable. They were playing checkers <laughs> back then. We're playing chess now. But uh, yeah, I, I think the the fourteen defense, like to your point, Ben, like they they had a few players. I think that that went a long way or that played a, a ton of snaps. Um, I think that's the sa- it comes down to safeties, but um, the safety play being better that year than than this year. Um, but with with that said, it's hard to like. Grady Jarrett and Vic Beasley were good, but Christian Wilkins and Cleveland Farrell, to me, that combo is just as good, if not better. Throw in Dexter Lawrence, um, who might be the best, most talented player on the line, and then, and then of course, Austin Bryant. I think it's 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 better. And Xavier Thomas, by the way, probably the best of the backups of, of that whole group. Well, and that's the thing. We're going to continue to have these conversations going down the road. Like we're, Within a couple of years, we'll be like, is this the best Clemson offense? I mean, think about it. Offense-wise, the next couple of years, project that. We're going to have a good offensive line next year coming back. you got Trevor Lawrence, all those receivers, and, and ETN, Lynn J. Dixon, and hopefully Feaster sticks around. Yeah, and on the defensive side, I remember after 14, on this very podcast, you know, coming into our first season previews that we did, we were laying down expectations of the defense taking a step backward, and they still maintain, I think, top five status that next year. Just speaks to the job Brent Venables does and has done, and in my mind, will continue to do until proven otherwise. So I think hands down, we all agree, Venables is the best coordinator in college football right now by a long shot, certainly on the defensive side of the ball. But I think just when you take all coordinators into into consideration that he's the best and he's a big reason why we found so much success. I've always kind of in my heart, and maybe this is probably just uh, naivety on my part, just wanting to keep, you know, my, my, my love of Venables. Um, but T.I. actually mentioned in an article that he does want to be a head coach someday. Um, I never saw that. I didn't think he'd want to give up, like, his the as much involvement as he has in defensive game planning and stuff like that. Maybe when he gets older, uh, he continues to get older, and maybe he calms down a little bit. Um, it, but that, because I love the fire and passion from the guy, but do I see that being a head coach? Maybe that's just me wanting him not to leave. I think, I think there could be a... a model or a, a system where you a head coach in college puts a lot of their effort into essentially being a defensive coordinator and then kind of outsourcing the, the offensive duties where which would be his weakness but it's really I, I think that's just a really tough thing I think the the way to do it is kind of the way Saban and Dabo do it in different styles is you got to be a program builder uh, and, a, and you have to run the program and it's a lot more than just X's and O coaching so I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But I, I think it's fair, to, as, as competitive as he is, to assume he will want to be a head coach. Yeah, but and you see a lot of these articles, too, just kind of laying it out for you. When you talk about Venables and, and Elliot and Scott, yeah, they've got opportunities. People are knocking on their door, uh, inquiring whether or not they want to consider being a head coach of their college football program. But why would you leave Clemson right now? You're getting paid well. You live in Clemson, South Carolina. It's not like the not the, the, the cost of living is that high. Taxes aren't that high there. And you're in probably your 
working and coaching for a program that has the best culture in college football right now and is the hottest team in college football right now. Well, we're starting. I, I like that point, Ben. And I think that what my thought is on the coordinators, certainly they could leave. Certainly they could go try to you know prove it on their own. And yeah, there's more money to be made as a head coach and establish their names a bit better. What might start happening though is how long can this Clemson run go? Could they be part of the net, very best or the next best dynasty in college football? And do they want to walk away from that to go be head coach at, I don't know, in you know Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott's case, you know, a, a middling to lower tier power five in Brent Venable's case. I'm curious what type of program he could land at. You know, is that for them and themselves, would it be, would it be better to be part of kind of the next decade of Bama, if you will, the golden decade of Clemson, play that out, see how that goes. And there's certainly time later on to kind of forge your own path. Right. Well, and they're all young. Um, and, you know, Venables has Jake in school there. Um, and I think kind of, for me, the uh, the next data point to compare Davo and, and Saban as you know, the two best coaches in college football right now is that when Davo has to face that adversity again of staff turnover, you know it's going to happen. I mean, you look at it since the 2015 season, our first playoff run, Elliot Scott, Streeter, Pierman, and Caldwell were all there and Venables. Um, so it, and probably other guys in the defense I didn't put on here, but that's a hell of a continuity. You look on the Alabama side of the ball and how many people they've lost and still maintain greatness. So Dabo is going to have to face that at some point. And so again, I think that's the next data point for a comparison is how, um, he reacts to that and how wet you weather that storm and, and, and move through continue going, because it's not like Alabama loses people in the off season. It's before the championship game or before yeah. the playoffs start. And that has to be a little bit of a distraction. It's a difficulty factor for sure yeah. that uh, Saban has proven to be able to weather. And we have not yet seen that from Dabo. So, you know, as we pile up natties, everyone tries to continue to come up with a way to say like, ah, Clemson doesn't have staying power. And originally we heard, oh, you can't replace that defense from 2014. And then we heard, oh, Deshaun, you won one with Deshaun Watson. But when he leaves, good luck. Clemson's going to fade back. You're going to cycle out. Thanks, Todd Ellis. Um, and it just hasn't been the case. I think the next kind of can Clemson continue is, to your point, Ben, going to be with the coaching turnover that eventually happens. My question, I guess, what I was saying is, has Clemson gotten so good so quickly that now these guys are going to want to stick around and see what can we do with this thing as a run overall? I think so. Well, I think they all have their – they've all made their contribution. They're all creators of what this is – I mean, you could call it a dynasty. I don't know. It's just how you, how you like to define dynasty, I guess. Budding dynasty. A budding oh. dynasty, yeah. And everyone has, has, has you know, chipped in and, and built this, I mean, including the – offensive coordinators which by the way Jeff Scott could have went to Tennessee to be the the sole offensive coordinator there and I was surprised that he didn't go there because he would have doubled his he would have doubled his salary I mean that's just one example but yeah I mean I think it's hard to go from the Clemson brand and move to that crappy color of orange (laughs) (laughs) I think that has to have something to do with it finish your thought Cody no, that's I'm I'm surprised though. That's that's a I mean it's not it's 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 a sizable pay raise and it's a it's it's, it's an not, upper tier power five job in a top conference. There yeah, you go. I, I mean Tennessee right. is I mean University of Tennessee Reggie White Peyton Manning. It's not you know we're not talking about Kansas State here. Well, and think about like all the talk about these Saban disciples, right? That have gone out 
and, and populated the college football coaching landscape. And we've yet to seen that with, with there's no Dabo disciples yet, right? Nobody's gone out and kind of gotten their Chad feet, Morris. Feet wet. Oh, Chad Morris. Um, the tree of Dabo, yeah. It's not yeah but even, Chad, still. even Chad Morris, I would say he was kind of his own thing and was his own personality. And, and, and these other guys have come up, haven't been groomed by Dabo. Um, so eventually they're going to go out and try to make their mark in the world. So it'd be interesting to follow them and see what type of success they have um, building their programs based on what they've learned under Dabo's culture versus how well uh, Nick Saban's disciples have fared um, building programs based off what they learned under Saban. Well, and it is the Saban story, the Saban coaching tree story, a little bit of a cautionary tale as well. You've got Jim McElwain. I mean, there's, I'm going to miss tons of them, but um, Jimbo Fisher, I mean, he's, he's probably had the most success. Kirby Saban. Smart. Kirby, Saban, Kirby Smart as well. Jimbo is the only one to win a title um, at this stage. Uh, but yeah, kind of Saban's coaching tree has not had all the success in the world. And I don't know that that's keeping Jeff Scott, Tony Elliott, and Brent Venables in the Clemson you know, family necessarily and not going out and forging their own path. I think maybe it says more about Saban and how good of a coach he is you know, yeah, than same, anything else. You could say the same about Bill Belichick. Yeah. His coaching tree has not had a ton of success. So it's similar styles. Saban is of the Belichick coaching tree also, incidentally. But both former Browns coaches. Um, but anyway, guys, why don't we use this chance to pivot into this into a look back at the season? Before we move on real quick, I, I just we haven't done this yet. Um, I just want to give a big thank you to the state of Alabama and, and the program, the Alabama Crimson Tide not only for the elite level of competition and all the entertaining games over the last uh, four years, because I, I truly have appreciated that and watching Clemson play these uh, great Alabama teams has been truly entertaining and just a lot of fun. Uh, but thank you for Frank Howard. Thank you for Danny Ford and thank you for Dabo Sweeney. All Alabama guys, um, those are the top three win leaders in, uh, in Clemson history. And thank you for Justin Ross. Really appreciate that. Guys, let's move on to looking at the season in review. Uh, usually when we approach this, we tend to break down a season in terms of chapters or phases. And I think that's never been more real than this season as you look back. Um, and normally we would break it down into like several week chunks within each chapter or phase. In this one, really, I, I see it having gone into three different buckets. Weeks one through four, Kelly Bryant was still the starting quarterback. Then... The second chapter is really everything surrounding the Syracuse week before and after with quarterback change. After that Syracuse game from Wake on really felt like a long continuation of the same chapter um, and what built up across this team. I thought we could kind of break down each of those chapters and as much as is possible, try to go back to what our mindset was as fans and to what we saw coming out of the team. Do you guys agree that that's kind of how the season felt like a tale of three, tale of three seasons? Well, it was a very boring regular season. I mean, outside of the, the Kelly Bryant drama in the Syracuse game. Yeah, I mean, realistically, that like 10-day stretch of Kelly not coming to practice, um, not knowing what, we, what he was going to do, and ultimately announcing his transfer decision. Then you had the Syracuse game, and then leading up even to the aftermath of that with um, the decision and not knowing what Trevor Lawrence's health was. You had um, you know, some unfortunate news come out about C.J. Fuller. We got an... We got a season worth of drama in about a 10-day stretch there in the middle. Outside of that, I agree with you. Kind of a boring, lackluster, not very momentous or eventful regular season. 
Yeah, well, I kind of showed you the poise of this team. And, you know, you wondered where the leadership was going to come from, especially on the offensive side of the ball with everybody being so young and Kelly Bryant leaving the program. But um, for them to come out of that Syracuse game, because, listen, leading up to that, you had, you know, a good win against Furman. You had a close game against A&M, a 38-7 win against Georgia Southern in a 49-21 game against Georgia Tech. At that point, we don't know anything about this football team, um, having played those teams, um, because we didn't really know how good A&M was or was not going to be. Um, and I'll remind everybody, it was Kelly Bryant who brought us back in that game, not Trevor Lawrence. Then you had the Syracuse game, and the adversity faced in that game, and for the team to stay poised, for Chase Bryce to come in there and, and do what he did, especially after that first uh, uh, play that he was in on, and then to go through that, deal with the loss of Kelly Bryan, all the distractions <laughs> there, the injury to Trevor Lawrence, and then immediately come back and blow out Wake by 60 points and just continue or, or, or begin a streak of whatever, 9, 10, 20-point wins in a row to close out the season. That's called finishing strong. I mean, I remember going back to week two, the three of us did a recap of the AM game in Cody's dining room, and... Meanwhile, we're there kind of sneaking by and um, we needed Kelly Bryant to, again, have a clutch performance in that second half, to your point, Ben. Um, we, we were very unsure if this was a championship caliber team. Meanwhile, and it's impossible to separate this, Alabama and Tua, they were solidified under him. They had two amazing, they had a blowout of Louisville in the first week, and then I think they blew out whoever they played in the second week as well. Um, I think it was an out-of-conference game, but um, they were looking like, well-oiled machine from the start and there were just tons of questions there and i think some of our worst fears not were being realized but we were i mean i think we all still felt that yeah this this team is a championship team if trevor lawrence is the starting quarterback and is really leading the offense but after that a&m game i i don't know that i was sure that he was going to be able to do that at least early on i think when that changed was in that georgia tech game and that's when tl took over and really claimed the starting role and solidified his spot, led to Dabo's decision to make him the starter, and set us on the course, which would become the championship run. Um, but really, that Georgia Tech game is what did it. Um, but we would not, I don't think, have beaten Texas A&M if Kelly Bryant didn't have the kind of game that he did in the second half. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, Trevor Lawrence, for as good as he looked at the end of the season, was not the same player at the beginning of the season. Now, he progressed like like you've never seen before. Um you know, I had a note in here almost, you know, I thought to myself, did we see him grow up over the course of the season? I almost feel like he was a grown man coming into the season. Um, but we, we, he, he was not there. He was not at the same level at the beginning of the year. So, yeah, the fact that Kelly Bryant coming in, in there and winning that game, I think that's a good storyline. I think uh, that's how Clemson fans should remember Kelly Bryant. Absolutely. Yeah. But wanted to make sure in this show we, we gave him his due absolutely. and his contributions, not just last year and backing up to Sean Watson all those years. But this season, we have rings because Kelly Bryant was a starting quarterback of this team. Absolutely. It's crazy that three quarterbacks have helped us win games this year. Right. And I think the, like, the myth of Trevor Lawrence would be that he came in from day one and he was an NFL quarterback. But kind of been to your point, he grew throughout the season. and He definitely looked like a freshman at times. You could definitely tell he was locking, on, locking in on receivers, made some questionable decisions like in the Syracuse game before he got injured. Like, Texas A&M was able to put a lot of pressure on him. And well, real quick, I mean, 
I was ready to host a battle royale podcast with Clemson Paws ready to come on and debate Quacking Tiger that Kelly Bryant should be the starter the rest of the year. Then the Georgia Tech game happened. You know, stuff progressed before we would get that in. But I, yeah, I there was a time where an argument could have been made for Kelly Bryant over it, Trevor Lawrence. Exactly. It was it was wrong, but it, <laughs> right. it, it could have been made. Yeah, there was there was a defensible case to be made there. Um, I mean, you know, I kind of wrote down highlights, lowlights of this first phase, the first four weeks. We touched on some of the highlights already, but, you know, Trevor Lawrence struggling against in the face of pressure against a top well-coached defense from Mike Elko's A&M Aggies. That did not give us all the confidence in the world that we would be able to figure this out. I think there were plenty of weeks ahead um, if TL were going to get it, was going to get into the game and be able to be, you know, the starter and, and have time to develop. Um, that ended up playing out. Um, the A&M game, I have not gone back and watched that. I, I'm, I definitely want to plan some time to be able to do that because I was there. You were there. You remember it vividly. I mean, it took a lot of miraculous plays from Kellen Wan, from some assistance from the refs not calling holding against our defense and what their wide receiver core was able to do. But uh, don't forget that um, the fumble out of bounds play either. Right. What, what oh, sort of yeah, that, that was huge. What that led to. If you think about moments of this season and just like bounces of the ball going one way or another, um, that one comes to mind as well as the Darian Kendrick kind of um, fumble against Notre Dame. But the difference with that, that was the, 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 the end of the game. We had two moments this year where we faced losing a game, and that was Syracuse and Texas A&M. And I would like to look back over previous seasons and see how many times we were kind of on the brink of, of losing. Only twice throughout the year, and for those things to happen – so early in the season, after the fifth game, nobody gave us a. Sh- there was no, there was no chance mm-hmm. for anybody. Yeah, exactly. Which just speaks to the dominance of this team, and probably why they should be our lock for best Clemson team of all time. Just not not being put into a position to lose. Yeah, the so the the latter half or the second third of the of the actual schedule, we just kind of go into the autopilot, and we're just beating teams about twenty eight points or more. I think part of one of the things that we were having a hard time understanding was Trevor Lawrence is starting to make some throws and he's like the whole arm talent cliche. Like he was, there was a lot of arm talent making throws from opposite, the opposite side of the field to like T Higgins, his body. Yeah. Yeah. And you and you couldn't help, but wonder, like, I know this is Louisville. I know this is wake and NC state, but I don't think that any team can, can defend that. But we don't, we didn't know until we played against a really good secondary, like Notre Dame or a really good defense like Alabama. Turns out, yeah, like these things will translate because that's what you're always looking for, like elite level football. What are the things that a Bama or a Georgia or Ohio State can't take away from you? And I think we what we were seeing was not like Clemson just like crushing a bunch of bad ACC teams. We were seeing an elite, elite team just yeah curb stomp everyone. And there were games in that stretch where opposing defenses and opposing head coaches in their game plan attempted to take away certain aspects of our, of our offense. And we saw the opposite unit rise to the occasion. And I mean, um, against Wake Forest kind of trying to limit, they were trying to throw a lot of looks at Trevor Lawrence, trying to limit and our running backs just went roughshod against Wake. There were other games where like NC state, they, they looked to take away our running game and Trevor Lawrence shown those opportunities. Well, yeah, back to backs. NC State and Florida State, he had over 300 yards passing, and ETN had up under 45 yards rushing in both of those games. Yeah, so the maybe the tale of that stretch of this season was that this team could beat you in any number of different ways, and that might be in other years where um, they, they do that, they take away, let's say, the quarterback, and our running game 
maybe kept it a little bit closer than um, than we would have liked. I mean, the result being 20-plus point victories the last 10 weeks of the year. Um, but I think we need to take this chance to both applaud what Travis Etienne meant to this team as an offensive weapon and what the coaching staff was able to do to find what the defense was giving us and actually execute and exploit that. Yeah, and Etienne was the one tried and true all year long, consistent. Everyone was upset that he wasn't getting more than 9 or 10 carries per game. He legitimately could have been in uh, in New York for the Heisman ceremony if we would have given him those 15 or 20 carries. He might have gotten injured, so it was, it was a good, I think, um, premeditated decision not to expose him to that much risk. Um, but ultimately, Etienne in the run game, in the run blocking this year, was the first year on the offensive line and you know this is a big kudos to Robbie Caldwell we established an elite running game I think pass blocking had had its issues but ultimately like we were a dominant dominant we had an identity before we could fully carve out our identity and that being the pass game well the pass the pass blocking got better as the season went along and it was really uh, certain teams would focus on one thing and trying to take one thing away from us and early on it was Maybe trying to limit uh, Trevor Lawrence in the passing game and getting pressure on him. But, uh, I mean, again, we talk about that stretch there where you've got from Wake Forest to Louisville where we're either running all over you or we're throwing all over you. I mean, the, we beat Louisville. We put up 77 on Louisville, and Chase Bryce was leading passer with 110 yards passing, right, and put up 77 points. We didn't need to pass. It ran all over him. So that helped provide some cover for Trevor Lawrence and allowed him to grow, but – after that Louisville game, you really start to see him take off um, throughout the rest of the season. Um, but in this, the running game saw its moments. I mean, in the pit game, we leaned heavily on the run. So it was a nice balance all year long. Yeah. You could try to take one thing away from us, but we were so good at everything that we did that we would just do the other thing well, and that's what we'd use to beat you. I do. I will say, sort of to the credit of the teams on this schedule, there were definitely moments and units that put this offense – uh, put some pressure on this offense, literally pressure, and as well as just figuratively um, challenged in ways and caused Trevor Lawrence staff to develop. I think Pitt's front and the the, the pass rush that they were able to put put in, um, the start against Duke, and I think Boston College pressure. Um, they had I think the best um, best pass rush that we've faced this year in that BC game. Um, it is a bummer a little bit that their quarterback went down in the first series. I would have liked to see what that game would have looked like, you know, with sort of um, Brown being able to play in that game. But um, anyway, yeah, certainly a weak ACC cupcake schedule um, by a lot of metrics. But I do think that um, the opposing teams were able to at least challenge this team in ways that allowed TL to develop. Uh, I guess from a low light from week six on, I have to look at the South Carolina game and the performance that they were able to get, get going in the passing game. Um, a few busts on the secondary, and it really seemed like for whatever reason, the de- defensive line also was not getting home. There was a little bit of, I think, gadget plays to try to confuse them. I chalked that up to motivation, which is odd because it's a rivalry game to take our fifth in a row. Yeah, but the way they were able to beat us with their slot receiver, and that was really the only time that was an issue all year. It even didn't even come into play with Notre Dame's good wide receivers and Alabama's great wide receivers. That was such an anomaly that I'm not sure something else wasn't happening like we knew we were gonna be able to score all day on them so we weren't showing stuff certain things on defense who knows um but you know low light yes it was disappointing that they put up i mean hell they i'm grasping at straws here i mean hell well i mean they put up more points on this defense than any other team that we face this year by far 
um, by nine points was the next closest. So, I mean, uh, from a defensive standpoint, you could say it's a little light, but not from the offensive standpoint. I would sure. say Jake Bentley, and Ben, your head might explode um, when I tell you this, but he actually, he went from... His like, head might explode. He, he went from a mediocre quarterback his whole career to something like the light switch just came on for him. And part of the reason they were able to do that is because he was brilliant in the pocket. Well, and, and they actually played better in the second half of their season, too. Um, from an up until the bowl game, he had well until the bowl game. I mean, he had a rough start um, um, this year, and they're often well, they played well. Georgia early, I believe something like week three. But this isn't the South Carolina Gamecock podcast, so we'll move on from them. But no, I agree. I mean, I think he 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 showed out, and their whole team came ready to play. Chalk it up to coaching, chalk it up to rivalry, whatever it is. But um, yeah, they still lost by twenty one points, so felt like a win to me. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, so, I mean, I guess that that stretch of the year was great as a Clemson fan. Maybe not the most exciting, um, but definitely we, we got what we needed to. And just as well as depth. I think that um, the amount of the number of players and we can touch on the metrics there, but um, the amount of snaps and playing time not only set up for the ability to react later on and make adjustments in games. You saw the emergence of a guy like Nolan Turner in the playoff. Um, he doesn't have that emergence if he's not getting snaps earlier on in the year against much lesser competition um, and building up his confidence and, and timing and things of that nature and coverage. Um, but I think, yeah, you know, this stretch was what it needed to be for this team, and they didn't have the hiccup that in some years we would see a lack of focus or um, allowing an injury like Kelly Bryant's concussion and exit in the Syracuse game come back to bite us. Yeah, and I think it all starts with that defensive line. Those guys coming back, they weren't going to let that happen. They came back with a with a purpose, and that was to win a national championship. And you saw the resolve of this team all year long. Again, after that that bit of adversity there uh, there at between uh, Georgia Tech and Syracuse, um, just a completely different ball team the rest of the year. So leading into the playoff, guys, I mean, we knew it was a Notre Dame matchup coming up. I don't think any of us had too much fear about that that matchup happening. But vividly in my mind, I remember on Christmas Eve, uh, running out to run an errand, and um, the blogger DBBM pinged the Shaking the Southland Slack uh, chat with basically a whelp message about player suspensions. And I think that just set a different tone for pre-bowl and potentially cast a pall over the bowl season in general. Um, what I'm glad has happened is not calling into question kind of Clemson's legitimacy. But um, certainly at the time, I think we were wondering what would happen with Dexter Lawrence's absence on this team. I think we lamented a little bit. We thought Braden Galloway would become a part of the offense, a wrinkle, a weapon uh, that might allow us to compete with what looked like on paper an all-time great Alabama football team. Ended up not mattering too much, uh, these suspensions, at least as far as the two games go. We'll see what happens this coming year if they're able to win an appeal there, but uh, at the time, that certainly kind of set the tone throughout the playoff prep. Well, and that's another um, you know point of distraction, right? You had the Kelly Bryant thing, and then you had the suspensions, and the fact that the team just kind of did not miss a beat um, and went on and just crushed their two opponents, the number one and the number three ranked team in the country, um, in the biggest games of the season. That just, again, goes to show you their focus. Yeah, I mean, I really thought that would kind of cast a negative shadow over the team, and it's one thing when your All-American defensive tackle is not playing, and what kind of the what that leaves you uh, against a team like Bama. But it's another thing when they just, I mean, just the mindset that could it could just kind of overtake you. But it didn't, didn't yeah, wasn't a problem. 
smooth sailing. Yeah, pretty amazing. I mean, in the Cotton Bowl game itself, I think the narratives I'm going to remember five years from now is how much the defense shook uh, quarterback Ian Book. Trevor Lawrence ultimately picking apart their secondary, some acrobatic catches, particularly from T. Higgins, and taking advantage once their starters went down um, on defense, you know, picking picking them apart with Trevor Lawrence. And um, when you do that to, I mean, the the negative narrative about Brian Kelly is that that guy just does not know how to make an adjustment. And I think we saw that in this Cotton Bowl especially, and eventually ETN broke through. Um, this game could have been a much bigger blowout, I think, if the coaching staff had had pressed on, but I also think at some point they were willing to be conservative to not put too much out there. Yeah, for don't, don't don't show the playbook. Don't show exactly. your hand if you don't have to. Yeah. In, in my Notre Dame friend, you know, he swears by the fact that they love the safety got injured and then we pick on the backup in the next play. And I'm he's like, if that doesn't happen, it's a close game throughout. And I'm I'm thinking, did you you know did you see the national championship game? Like Justin Ross and T Higgins will make catches over your great. And they by the way, he was a really good safety and a really good secondary, but. Like we would have made, That's we would have got ours. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I agree fully. Um, and again, kind of the, the look back on the national championship game. Um, big plays were the story of this game. And I think in order to have big plays, you need a quarterback that can stand in there against pressure. TL took pressure in this game um, and was able to connect and make, make passes. For me, what, and we'll touch on this in the Watson Awards here, I think what really solidified his performance is all-time great from TL was what he showed on that touchdown to T. Higgins in the second half. Um, just it, it not only reflected his arm talent, but also his poise in the pocket. Uh, the national championship game? Yeah, the national oh, That last touchdown into the end zone? Exactly. Where, yeah, that was great throw, great catch. We're not going to talk about that probably as one of the best plays of the year just because it didn't matter at that point. Um, and we were all just so jubilant and excited we knew we were going to win. But it, it, as an individual play itself, that was amazing. Yeah, it's it might be the best reflection of the talent of both players and just kind of a microcosm moment of the season and their talent um, that really sticks out to me. Um, And I'll probably try to try to cherish when I look back at that game. Um, But also honestly, and we did not touch on this shockingly in the recap show that we did last week, the story of this one was Saban getting out coached and Saban basically losing. I mean, Saban lost that game and I yeah. think a lot of it could come down to a lack of adjustment or they, they, they panicked. Bl- they panicked with the fake field goal. They blinked in the red zone, with their offensive identity, running the football effectively, I might add, against our defense. And that should be part of the takeaway as much as it was Clemson's dominant offense. So anyway, that I definitely want to make sure we touched on the out coaching factor. Yeah. It was an amazing run. I mean, when this team had to play their, their best, they did. We gave up what, 29 points our last three games of the season. And our lowest scoring total in those three games was 30. And those are all championship-level games, right? Um, so it's really on, on, on both sides of the ball, and you got to give a ton of credit to the coaching staff. Um, and, you know, Dabo's been outcoached by Nick Saban before. Uh, we've seen it. And I think he really put his mark on, on things, and especially with Urban Meyer leaving. And even if Urban Meyer was staying this year, I almost see Dabo surpassing him um, in the one-two kind of ladder of, of, of best coaches in college football. Right now, I'm still going to give the nod to Nick Saban because I'm not going to let one game define like what he's done over the past decade at Alabama because it's been absolutely amazing. So 
he's still number one. And Dabo, there's no one A, one B either, but Dabo's number two. But uh, Dabo's come a long way in a very short period of time to get there. Yeah, I remember it, after the 15th season, uh, now it's our first championship where we lost, um, there was there were the coaches, coaching rankings, and Jimbo Fisher was like, well ahead of Dabo and I'm like really are we sure you know are we sure about that and, and Jimbo had a championship but man like Jimbo had a Jameis Winston right exactly and yeah I mean Dabo had exceeded expectations in like every year in the last four years whereas that was the only year anyhow not, not to make it a Jimbo versus Dabo but anyhow I, I think it's pretty everyone knows it's unanimous that Dabo is number two right now and number three is with some distance well I want to maybe pivot from looking at the tenor of the season overall. And I do want to talk about some narratives that either coming into the year have been debunked or that just came up throughout the year. And one of these does relate to Dabo. And I think, you know, I, I hosted an interview with Alex Kraft where I think we were both expecting, and it, the topic was the Kelly Bryant, Trevor Lawrence playing time situation, how Dabo was going to manage that and balance it. And our incorrect narrative there was that Dabo favors seniority. He's going to Know, give lend a lot of credit to Kelly Bryant leading this team to the playoff last year. And I think Dabo now, I mean, it's the proof is championships matter. And do, putting the team in the best position to win a championship is truly, you know, Dab, that's Dabo's mark. That's, that's his legacy. The goal. That's the goal. He, he doesn't get it twisted. And um, it seems like it's an, an atmosphere at Clemson now of competition. Those who went out, you know, you get the playing time, you get the role, you get the accolades. I don't care if you're a true freshman. A lot of cases we've seen that this is also a year where the narrative can be this was the year of the true freshman at Clemson. Um, well, I think the bigger takeaway is what does that do for recruiting moving forward? I mean, we've been recruiting really well, and just think about it now. Um, we've been recruiting so well in, in the past, and we haven't necessarily been playing all those young guys so early, the second and third stringers in the first half. Um, this year, last year, we started to do that, and this year, a completely different story. And to be able to sell that to your recruits and show that, hey, we can play all these young guys and win national championships um, convincingly, recruiting is just on an upward trajectory, and it will continue to be. Yeah, and I didn't think that I, I didn't think that Clemson could move any further up in like recruiting and in, in the in the Clemson brand, but apparently, like the come up, which I thought I think players would be want to be more part of versus just being like the dynasty, being you know in the, in the midst of it. But apparently, that I think that is more appealing, and in Alabama it holds true there too. The fact that every year you you have a chance to win a championship, like that's pretty appealing to recruits. Well, and look at look at the vlog of the you guys should go watch the vlog that just came out of the of the natty of the parade of the aftermath, and you can go compete for championships while having fun, while getting playing time from your first few weeks on campus, or your first few few weeks in the, in the regular season. Um, looks a little bit more fun to do it that way than going to Alabama. Yeah, that, nothing, nothing about Alabama seems fun. <laughs> well, that's what the, I think Andy, the wheel. Andy, I believe it was Andy Staples who said, like, the, the experience at Alabama, it's like you go there, it's like, it's not like boot camp or military. Like, it, you, you get a lot from it, but it takes a lot from you, and it's not the best time of your life. Whereas Clemson, it's like, it's the opposite. Yeah, there's a reason why kids want to come back uh, for their senior years. Yeah. And, and these, these guys that came back this year, it's not the first time that's happened. Going back to kind of year, the year's narratives, I think they're when we look back at our preview shows and talking about like what what are the obstacles of this team returning to the playoff, returning to competing for a natty, getting back on the top of the mountain. I think we we would have called out two areas, both the secondary, some some question marks there, some question marks mainly around depth, um, as well as just that that the peak performance that we could expect out of them. 
and then the offensive line. And what we can see, and what I will say is both of these reflected tremendous coaching contributions this year, but definitely both sides from a personnel standpoint and play on the field stepped up. I would almost call both of those to the positive. Um, You know, certainly some negative moments, um, particularly like in the Natty game, the Jerry Judy touchdown to begin. Um, But after that, I mean, zero sacks of Trevor Lawrence in that game. Uh, The secondary turned the ball over twice with a pick six. Incredible. Um, And safety play was great throughout. Um, Muse had definitely a a fourth down stop on that um, was critical uh, to end an Alabama drive. So, Anyway, um, secondary and O line, you know, had a great season overall. Yeah, I mean, they they came they came along as the season went along. Talk about guys like Gage Shavinka coming in when Sean Pollard maybe isn't playing his best, and then looking into the secondary, um, yeah, guys like Denzel Johnson and Nolan Turner who were not playing great and they were playing very tentative at the beginning of the year, but to stick with it and the coaches' belief in sticking with them, um, and to ultimately play as well as they did. It was not a necessarily a weak point in that game. And, you know, Tanner Muse has done nothing but get better um, over his time at Clemson. And, yeah, he's had some busts this year. And he had busts in the national championship game. But he came back and played a really good game after that. Um, and he'll be back next year. And he's only going to be better. So, um, yeah, kudos to, to those guys. And, and specifically in our secondary, uh, between Mullen and Terrell, how well they played. And because they were, they were not – backed up much mark fields dealing with injuries or whatever he was all year long uh anthony williams not, not quite ready yet same thing with uh, kyler michael and mario goodrich so for those two guys to really just lock it down all year long that was huge um for, for the secondary and then, then again the safety play they just improved as the year went along the one area where we also had some concerns Dorian daniel was so darn good at the sam linebacker position and there were some false narratives coming out that Isaiah Simmons would, you know, just be plug and play. There'd be no drop off. He's this freak athlete. That's not how it worked out. He was, he was not Dorian Daniel. There was a clear drop off, but well, as the season progressed, he got better. You could see his instincts. He was playing a lot faster, yeah. um, well, taking better angles in pursuit. He, he really came a long way. It's a very difficult position to play in this scheme. And even Dorian Daniel, hell, it took him four years <laughs> to, to be that good. Right. And this is Isaiah Simmons third year. And he got better as the season went along. Yeah, and he'll be back next year, which is going to be great great for this defense from a continuity standpoint. Um, maybe one other aspect, and I know we've touched a little bit on the quality of the coaching this season. I think, I mean, I was going to ask you guys, like, was this the best coaching job top to bottom that you've seen from, from Clemson's staff? You'd probably have to argue just the, the sheer decision of the quarterback change and what that meant to the championship, that yes, that that is. Um, but yeah. I... The decision to throw in reserves for for uh, to preserve uh, health and you know and play the long game. Uh, the another another part I think part of the strategy and Kraken wrote about this. We did not throw over the middle at all during the season. We completely were we were sandbagging and waiting for the playoff. And that's and even against Notre Dame, we were we quit around halfway through because we were up. Yeah, not wanting to open the playbook in that game. Yeah, I mean, I, so mainly I wanted to ask when we talked about the Chad Morris era ending and that basically kicked off the competing for championships era with the Tony Elliott and Jeff Scott co-coordinator tenure, we wanted to know like, what, what were we getting out of these guys? Were they just, you know, riding on the Deshaun Watson talent? Um, are they solidly some of the top offensive minds in the country? And I think what I saw from this season 
was them continuing to assert themselves and knowing what it takes to uh, leverage the talent on this team. I think in the beginning of the year, we knew we would be talented on offense, especially at the receiver position. The questions in my mind was, will they be able to effectively distribute the ball around that talent and kind of find the cracks in a defense and show what it takes to win? And that's also a big part of how well they do it, kind of keeping all these high-profile athletes, high-star-powered athletes' egos in check, right? They're all very, seem to be very humble kids, even the five stars that have all the talent in the world. Um, they come in, they buy into the system, and this is a system that this coaching staff has has created, an environment and a culture that they've created. So I, I think for them to not only do as well as they are in, in scheming and, and how they've, especially on the offensive side of the ball, evolved over the years and being able to distribute the ball, um, just to, to keep all these kids' heads straight. And, I mean, I'm just, I mean, part of that goes to recruiting because I'm just blown away a lot of times when I'm seeing videos of these guys coming in as freshmen and just, just how mature and well-rounded these guys are. Yeah, they're getting the right talent from a physical attributes and talent standpoint um, in terms of ball on the field. I think between the ears and the culture fit and the getting the right guys to buy into the system, I think is maybe something that's not as celebrated and it should be. It's like when Trey Lamar comes on the big screen or whatever, the, the national championship game, and you see him talk, it's like, that guy, I'd hire him as my lawyer or my doctor. Like, he just comes across, like, just so much beyond his years. Um, yeah, and they showed a little bit in the recent blog. They had Brad Scott, and if essentially, like, he's in charge of the freshmen when you come in. Yeah. Making sure they have a coach that they can have as kind of a, a confidant and you know a mentor and that sort of thing it makes a huge difference. It kind of sets them on the right path. I mean, eighteen-year-old kids as freshmen. I remember my time. Like, I I didn't have that kind of resource and could have used it from an advice standpoint and having someone to, to lean on. So um, that is all part of the Dabo experience and the program and culture that he's established. Is it the Paw Journey? Pod Journey is part of that too. That's yeah. led by um, Jeff Davis. Yeah. And um, that that's maybe a little more forward looking into kind of post graduation and career standpoint. But well, well bottom line it starts, is starts it. Bottom yeah. line is the vision has worked and it is working. Definitely. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe the last narrative we haven't touched on is just the defensive line and um, those those guys deciding to come back. And let me ask you guys, like, with a yes or no, like, did they live up to your expectations this year? Absolutely. I mean, they were, they were the defense. They helped us weather the storm of the secondary trying to get their, their feet under them. And even, you know, linebacker play all year long and coverage weren't that great. Uh, but quarterbacks, supposing quarterbacks didn't really have a lot of time and that all points to the defense and nobody could run on us. Yeah. I mean, they, they were, everyone had a scheme around us. It made offenses just completely dysfunctional from the onset. Even Alabama had their issues. Yeah, they they were they lived up to the hype. I'd say Christian Wilkins and Farrell and you know, and Dexter Lawrence because he was injured the previous year. I think all of them took a step forward. And uh, and Mitch Hyatt, like you have to include him in there as well. Yeah, just another amazing year for him. Yeah, they they basically all delivered on already lofty expectations um, coming back, and they were really the leadership of this team too. And we're not able to cycle as many guys in and get the type of snaps that we were talking about. Um, you know, 110 players played during a game this season, averaged out to about 73 per game. Bama, Oklahoma, and Notre Dame, instead of 73, they were averaging 55 a game. Same thing with Ohio State. Right. I mean, that just, that paints the picture for you. That ties a bow on it. 
Exactly. So um, anyway, tremendous year, top to bottom. Um, you know, we'll touch on a little bit looking forward, who we have coming back, what that sets up for in the future. But um, guys, I think it's time to hand out some hardware. Let's do it. Do you believe your alma mater at Clemson right now has put together a dynasty? For sure. I mean, the things that Coach Sweeney is bringing to that university, the recruits that's coming in, the, the, the things they're doing on the field each and every year, I mean, it's one of the top, if not the best program in the, in the country. So this is our fourth annual Watson's Awards. Essentially, the podcast group got together we picked the categories, and each of us made a selection for our number one winner for this category. Um, we'll make a little bit of a case for our picks, but we'll generally keep this section moving. So let's start out with the Defensive Player of the Year. Ben, who is your Watson? Um, I've got Cleveland Farrell. Um, and as I was thinking about this and looking into it, it it's funny because I, I don't think I noticed him as much this year, but he was in on so many plays, but... Led the team in tackles for loss with 19 and a half. Uh, led the team in sacks with 11 and a half. And tied with big decks for 15 quarterback pressures. So I think the numbers speak for themselves. So just how dominant and influential he was. So I had Christian Wilkins. And you could do a 1A, 1B between those two. The only reason I go with Wilkins and both of those guys, it seemed to bring, seemed to bring it, took no games off, which is very typical from a guy that's fourth year looking to go to the league. They brought it every game. Wilkins is a little bit closer to the quarterback. I mean, it's like literally just a closer distance to quarterback. He could get there quicker. He was more disruptive on more plays. Whereas it seemed to be that teams were uh, scheming away from a big sack by Farrell or Bryant. So that's why I go with Wilkins. I sided on the Wilkins side and our, our co-host Sam in absentia, his boat was with Klee. I think we can leave it, leave it at both these are 1A, 1Bs, all deserving of the Defensive Player of the Year Award. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's move on to Offensive Player of the Year. And uh, this one had Cody, myself, and Sam siding with Travis Etienne. And Ben, you actually bucked the trend here and went with Trevor Lawrence. Yeah, I just think that had Kelly Bryant remained the starter on this team, Etienne's not going to win us a national championship. I think Trevor Lawrence was the key piece uh, to putting this puzzle together um, that, that led to that great win. One point on Etienne, uh, probably the best running back performance since Spiller, right? Like, is there been Ellington had a few good throughout seasons. the year? Well, yeah, throughout the year, I think all the records he set. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna lean on the side of Trevor Lawrence did not set a bunch of Clemson season records. Travis Etienne did. He set a lot of freshman records. Fair enough, um, but Etienne just had to call out his his dominance, and he was doing this in a limited snap capacity. Um, Feaster and Choice saw tons of tons of snaps. And we actually really, there were only a handful of games where we were actually running the ball that much. So um, I would say, how can that be your player of the year? But I think just pound for pound, play for play, ETN to me was, was my offensive MVP. Let's move on to freshman player of the year. Um, most years, this might be one where we're looking at a guy just starting to get a few snaps, make a little bit of a mark. Uh, but this year was really the year of the freshman on the Clemson football team. Um, again, Cody, Sam, and myself were unanimous in picking Trevor Lawrence as our freshman player of the year. Ben, you're going to have to explain yourself. Yeah, it's funny. I kind of contradict myself in picking Lawrence as the offensive player of the year and then Ross as the freshman. But uh, I think un unconsciously, I was just kind of counting Trevor Lawrence out because he, he wasn't looking or played like a freshman. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to give my props to uh, Justin Ross uh, 
here. He led the team in receiving in seven of 15 games this year, um, including 148 versus Notre Dame and 153 versus Bama. I mean, that's phenomenal uh, for a freshman. Um, yeah, so most yards this year with 1,000. Right, He ended right on 1,000. He was second to T. Higgins with touchdowns with nine and averaged 21.7 yards a catch. I mean, that that looks like a senior-level production. I said it in a couple of podcasts. He will end his career at Clemson as the most decorated wide receiver, which is saying a lot considering we're WRU. Higgins may be the second. (laughs) Could be, exactly. So, um, yeah, great year from Jay Ross. Looking forward to more. And thank you, Bama. Let's move on uh, to the playoff MVP, most valuable player across the two playoff games. Um, Cody, why don't we start with you? Another Trevor Lawrence award. He definitely snapped into a, a higher gear. They're clearly the coaches had preparation, like, and he threw across the middle, which, you know, we're just saving that to, till the very end. But um, I think it gives everybody the hope that 2019 could be a very special year, at least offensively, and, uh, and the sky is the limit for Trevor Lawrence. I also had TL as my pick here, um, and I, I look no further than a comparison to the Sugar Bowl last year. And real difference was what our offense was able to do in the passing game, especially downfield. And I will credit that Cert- certainly, you know, Justin Ross, the effect of the receivers in the O-line helped. I think we're in a better spot with both of those units this year, but really Trevor Lawrence set- made the difference. He gets my Watson playoff MVP. Um, so I've got the offensive line. I thought they probably played their best two games of the year against probably the two uh, best defenses that they faced all year long. And part of Trevor Lawrence being able to be so successful is that he was kept upright. You mentioned the no sacks in the Alabama game, which is mind-blowing. Um, never would have seen that coming in. So I just want to give a big kudos to the offensive line uh, for what they've done. And then uh, Sam's got Justin Ross, which, yeah, you put him on the receiving end of uh, Trevor Lawrence uh, passes, you know, that, that one-two punch right there. So um, yeah, you look at his numbers. I already mentioned what he put up in both those games as leading receiver. You can certainly consider him, and not to mention the acrobatic catches he made. Let's move on to the most improved player award. Um, I'm going to go. It was very difficult for me to pick one player, so I went. I cheated. I went with the unit of the offensive line. I think just year on year, what they were able to do in the running game really established what Travis Etienne was capable of. And in the national championship game to allow zero sacks, I, I want to call out especially the play of Valsinelli. Um, but I think also uh, what John Simpson and Gage Cervenka contributed this year was great from an O-line standpoint. And really, this is where a lot of our fears of you know recruiting and roster management and everything have been is O-line depth and kind of sequencing and, and how much talent we've got there. Um, Development-wise and you know coaching them into, into playing shape, we owe a lot of um, a lot of this season's accolades to the O-line. Yeah, I went specifically with Gage Stravinka just because for some reason, Sean Pollard, we thought that would be a huge upgrade for him moving into right guard. It didn't work out. I, I can't help but wonder if he's maybe injured or something, but we'll have him back next season. I'm sure he'll improve upon uh, this year, but Gage Stravinka took a big step forward, and I don't know whether or not we'll move him to center or we'll keep him at right guard next year, but it, it makes for a very promising foundation for, for offensive line. Well, Pollard's actually been working out at center. During bowl practice, interesting enough. Um, yeah, I had Isaiah Simmons, and I think Sam kind of did the same thing. Is normally we talk about most improved from one year to the next, but this was kind of throughout the year um, the, the improvement that you've seen. And then for for Isaiah Simmons to move into this new uh, position, the nickel Sam, 
he led the team in defensive stats with so 780. He led the team in tackles with 97. He was fifth in tackles for loss with nine and a half, and tied for the team lead in pass breakups with seven. So the numbers alone, and again, him feeling out this new position, we know he has all the talent in the world, but the way he was able to progress over the course of the year, I, I thought he was most improved. And then Sam, in similar fashion, has the safeties in, uh, between Turner, Muse, and Johnson, and they certainly over the course of the year, really improved on their play from, uh, you know, game one to game 15. Yeah, definitely all, all good picks there. And you really needed the improvement both year to year and throughout the, throughout the season um, to achieve what this team did with 15-0 and um, 28-point victory against Bama. So really could have handed out a lot of these Watsons. Uh, let's move on to the 12th Man Award. Maybe we should define this one. I think, in my mind, it is... You sort of have the sixth man award in, in the NBA that awards the guy that's first off the bench that makes a huge impact um, on his team. And for me, I'll start out, I went with Justin Ross, not not a marked starter, but certainly had some of the, the most impact uh, on this team in our outcome of the year um, in sort of the first man off the bench from the offensive standpoint. And I kind of picked this. I, I didn't necessarily see anyone on the defensive side that was – and we had tons of guys coming in and making contributions. I didn't see any one stand out versus the others. So not taking nothing away from individual efforts on the defensive side, but I don't know if anyone made a bigger impact than Jay Ross. So I'm going with Xavier Thomas. And I guess, like, like tell you, as you're saying, like he wasn't really a starter. There's probably guys that were more productive overall. But Xavier Thomas was maybe the most exciting defensive player of the year. And every, and every time he's in, it was a treat watching him rush the passer. Again, looking to next year, like he's going to be the heart and soul of the defensive line. Sam had him too, and maybe something to also go vote in his favor was his special teams contributions. Um, he was down there a lot on kick and punt coverage. So, yeah, XT's a badass. Yeah, and so this is where I give Albert Huggins his due. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the narrative of him and, and him being more of a backup role. Uh, on the defensive line throughout his career and him biding his time and being patient and accepting that and not – uh, seeking greener pastures. Um, so to stick with it, and even in limited playing time this year, he's tied for second on the team with uh, 13 quarterback pressures. And then for him to play at the level that he did and step right in there when Dexter Lawrence was suspended, we talked about how that that seemed to have very little effect on this football team's in defensive performance um, in the Cotton Bowl and in the national championship game. So my vote goes to Albert Huggins there. Shout out to Niles Pinkney, though, on that fake field goal tackle. True. Crushed it. Uh, shout out to Nick Saban for calling that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, let's move on, guys, to the best single game performance. Let's do Sam in absentia. We'll start with him. Um, he picked the running backs versus Wake, and I certainly that was a very dominant performance um, from one position group. ETN had a great game, but you know, we saw big runs from Choice um, and catches as well, as well as from Tavian Feaster. So uh, I think Dixon was actually yeah Lin J too in, in that game. Feaster got hurt in that game, right, and came out uh, a little bit early. Yeah, so I think between Feast or between uh, Choice, Etienne, and Dixon, they all had over 100 yards rushing in that game. That's right. Yeah, the, the, so incredible kind of from a holistic approach from that position group. My well, why don't we stick with you, Ben? You also had a running back performance as your your pick. Yeah, so I've got ETN in the in the Syracuse game. Just for him to put the team on his shoulders, we all remember you know, Chase Bryce and his gutsy performance. But it was really the, the offensive line of the running game, just really grinding it out and, and setting the tempo for the rest of the game. He had 203 yards, 
averaging over seven and a half yards of carry and three touchdowns. So for me, and just not only the performance itself, but what it meant to the team at that point in the season. Hard to argue that performance, but I'm going, and I think totally you agree here, Trevor Lawrence against Bama. Because Cody, is the goal to win championships? It is. Yeah, TL versus Bama. Bigger game, bigger stage, and, you know, there were concerns about the deep ball. Uh, like, I think he's put those to rest, and, I mean, credit to the wide receivers on the on the, on the receiving end, but, I mean, it, that was incredible. What I said for me, I already touched on it earlier in the show, was the T. Higgins touchdown in the third quarter, um, you know, skying up, but really the, the ball placement, um, the difficult the degree of difficulty of that throw, really for me solidified that as a complete performance for Trevor Lawrence. As well as his running, um, and that ten minute first downs. His running with a minute and a half left in the game. I mean, up by that much, you know. Basically, while he normally looks like a gazelle in that one, he definitely showed us his uh, his strength and power and how tough he is as a quarterback too. Uh, so yeah, great, great, great performances across the board uh, from those Watson picks. Let's move on to the bring your own guts clutch performance of the year. Ben, you want to start us out? Case Bryce all the way, baby. Fourth and six. Can't beat that one. That was nearly unanimous. I think, Cody, I'll let you maybe make some comments about that if you'd like. Sam also chose the Chase Bryce against Q's performance. Um, that was one of the, I think I yelled like five times at home uh, throughout this season. That was one of those times where I, I just screamed. I mean, certainly from a moment standpoint, that one stands out in my mind. Um, but I do, I want to give... This gentleman, some credit, Kelly Bryant, in his performance in the second half against Texas A&M. I don't know if that Syracuse moment matters as much if we lose that game to Texas A&M. And Kelly Bryant definitely came in and steadied the ship in the third quarter um, and led us on some long, long touchdown drives. Uh, So want to give him his due. That was definitely clutch. Chase Bryce had to come from behind, though. So That's why, for me, it gets the nod. Fair. Definitely defensible. Um, moving on from there, the new Hopkins Catch of the Year Award. I don't think anything will be as memorable as 4th and 16 from Nuke, so that's why we've named the, the award as such. Um, but certainly we had some entrants this year that um, that were very memorable as well. Cody, what was yours? So I'm going T versus Notre Dame. Um, that's, the, that's the end zone catch where he just scoops it up uh, at the very tip of the end zone with, with his right arm. And by the way, like... Did, Engage a little bit of hyperbole. Is, is this the best receiving unit since the 2012 core? All around. Is it better? Top to bottom. Good question. I, th- I think it might be better than the, and that's just uh, the one two punch of, of Higgins and, and Ross. I mean, you start with that, right? I mean, the, we're talking Sammy versus uh, Sammy Nuke, Adam Humphreys, Sharon Peak, and I think in Jerome Brown. I mean, it's pretty. All guys played in the NFL. Yeah. Are playing in the NFL. I think it's comparable. We'll yeah, say that. Yeah. Might have to debate that in the offseason. Um, ben, how about you? Catch uh, of the year. Uh, T. Higgins versus Texas A&M. That was an absolutely amazing catch to go up over that guy and catch that ball with his fingertips and then turn around and make the run to the end zone. You know, a lot of these other catches involve some guys juggling balls. Um, well, and part of that is because they hit their hands and it popped up and they had to catch it again um he just grabbed that ball over to defender it was an amazing play um and kind of set the tone for the season for for these acrobatic catches from these wide receivers 
I think the one aspect of that touchdown that may make it New Hopkins worthy was the spin move that T put on to break the tackle and score the touchdown. That is very Nuke. But to me, the one that evoked Nuke the most in my mind, uh, Nuke is my favorite Clemson Tiger of all time, was the Justin Ross one-handed grab against Bama. Uh, just a feat of physical strength and just balance and everything that went into that catch. Um, I had friends who don't care about Clemson at all texting me during the game like, Hope you had a good angle on that. Hope they're showing the replay in the stadium. You're going to have to go back home and study that catch from all angles. It was ridiculous. Yeah, the last time I got texts for a catch like that in a Clemson game, I guess besides the fourth and 16, was Jamie Harper in the corner of the end zone against Alabama. Auburn. Auburn, sorry. Yeah, yeah that was um, the first game where they had 3D. Like it was the first college football game, I think. Oh, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were broadcasting in yeah. 3D. And I think that's that's maybe why that got so much so much hype. Yeah, so uh, Sam had T versus Notre Dame and Ross versus Bama. So, I mean, it's hard to argue against either of these. Um, Cody, you had, and it's funny, I'd forgotten about this. You had uh, honorable mention, Hunter Renfro against Syracuse. That was the one where he contorted his body. Yeah. Uh, Fourth down conversion, was it? I can't remember. I, it was It was a critical play. But it wasn't Bryce, on first and second down, probably, with Hunter Renfro. Bryce was in throw. the... Yeah, it wasn't a great throw. It was in the area code. And, and yeah, there was a little bit of acrobatics on Hunter Renfro's part. And, like, you can't have an award show where you don't acknowledge at least one catch from Hunter Renfro because he's, he's had another great year. True. Definitely. Um, we'll move on to the Gaines Adams Memorial Defensive Play of the Year. I was the standout here. Um, I went with the Xavier Thomas sack against Eric Dungy on the, the last drive of the game um, versus Syracuse. Uh, basically blew off his defender. Perfect moment. Um, the camera angle on that was incredible, so kudos to ESPN for that. Um, but that sack was just a yelping moment. You, you mentioned Cody, kind of those moments where you just scream in the moment. Um, that you was literally did a Yelp review on that. <laughs> you could five stars. <laughs> How about you guys? Uh, so we all had AJ Terrell's pick six and I think Cody put it best because of the moment and what that meant for that game. You go into the game, you know, it's Alabama, right? You never know. And then Tua. you need those plays in a game like that and talk about setting the tone that certainly did. I mean, I was in the corner of the end zone that he was running to and on the side of the field he was running to, and it was like, he was running right at me. Like he was doing it for me. And I really appreciate that AJ. I mean, as a fan, as a sports fan, it's, that was probably one of the best moments, Absolutely. not just like Clemson. Yeah. It was incredible. Um, and I think the, the crowd was, there was a lot of nerves after our first three and out and that really settled things down. Yeah. Massive moment. Um, Next, and Sam echoed your guys' sentiment on that one too. Next, Watson will go to the assistant coach of the year. And we're going to remove the coordinators from this because we should just name this the Brent Venables Award now um, if we wanted to. But I, in, in terms of non-coordinator, I had this one as a tie between um, Mickey Kahn, the safeties coach, and the cornerbacks coach, Mike Reed. Um, just what we got out of the secondary, what they were, they were able to do with limited depth and you could argue um, you know, a turnover of talent there. Um, they got a lot out of that. I'm going to give the edge, possibly, if you maybe pick one, to Mickey Kahn, only because he came to Clemson from Grayson. Some would say that allowed us to land Chase Bryce. Some would say that allowed us to win the Syracuse game and win this 15-0 season. Well, can't argue with that logic. Um, and so Sam had Mike Reed as well in the cornerbacks there. And, you know, part of that is how healthy they stayed. Um, and you know, the two guys who are out there are super talented. They're NFL guys. Uh, Cody and I had Robbie Caldwell and 
I think for all the crap we give Clemson and the coaching staff and the recruiting staff for not going out and getting all these offensive linemen that we so desperately need, like what Caldwell does with the guys that he has has been nothing short of brilliant um, over the course of these last few years. And it's all culminated in this season and probably the best offensive line in, in Dabo in the Davos winning era. So um, kudos to him. And then also kudos to, to Joey Batson and the, the strength and conditioning program too, because um, the health of this team was a huge factor this year. Great. Well, it's, it's, it's actually, we've had a lot of injury luck, but I don't think at some point you can't really call it luck. I right. think so. Um, no, you're right, and I think the nutrition been, staff should also be called out for that too. It, I was gonna say they've they've been innovative. Well, and, except for the ones that let the Osterine through, <laughs> Osterine and McDonald's. Yeah, <laughs> hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think we wanted Robbie Caldwell fired uh, six weeks ago, and now he's the assistant coach of the year. I'm not gonna say we wanted him fired, but look, if you're not gonna recruit at a high level, he doesn't. You better coach really well. At least he does. He does coach really well. And Robbie, I trust at this point. You got to give that guy the benefit. Um, how about the future Heisman? And I wasn't actually sure how we should interpret this award, guys. Uh, was it guy on the field that you thought was most likely to get the future Heisman, or is it just who's going to be the first one to win a Clemson Heisman? Uh, sure. I mean, we can frame it that way. I mean, whether or not the guy's on the team or not, I mean, I, I think we've got a couple good options on the team right now. And um, Cody, you picked both of them. Um, you know, last year I was the one saying that ETN looked like the closest thing to a Heisman winner that Clemson has ever had, um, you know, outside maybe CJ Spiller. Um, but then Trevor Lawrence comes along this year. And just because of the history of this award and how often it goes to quarterbacks, I mean, in hell in the last two decades, it's only really been quarterbacks and a few running backs. Um, I just got to give the, the tip of the cap to, to Trevor Lawrence there on this one. Well, I, I picked both, but here's the thing. How do teams defend us next year? Did they put, uh, seven in the box, and if they do, then that's going to be Trevor Lawrence's Heisman to lose. And if it's six men, men in the box, ETN's going to run 150 yards every game. So, so can we do this? It's one or the other. Like our ACC schedule next year, our entire schedule next year is pitiful. Can we just like focus on getting ETN the Heisman next year, and then Lawrence the year after that? Yeah, I think the reason, the, the fact that they're both there caused me to not necessarily pick one or the other, and I think they might neutralize one another, and you might see Tua win it next year. Um, unless Jalen Hurts goes to Oklahoma and wins it, um, <laughs> and they go for the hat trick. But um, my pick here was actually a guy that hasn't even committed to Clemson yet, DJ Ugalele. So not Ugalele. only are you predicting his highs, but you're predicting he commits to Clemson. I am. Why don't you go to Oregon a, now? A two-for-one there. Let's knock on wood that he comes to Hagertown. Um, yeah, I, if Deshaun Watson's not winning it, I don't know that Trevor Lawrence will win it. And a couple years from, I mean – Certainly, I think we could see better regular season performances out of TL than we got out of Deshaun Watson, uh, but the Heisman's stupid. It, it kind of is. We're not. We we put no emphasis on it. Let me. All right. So let me give the one non-Trevor Lawrence, Travis Etienne player that could win it. Justin Ross. Just. I think it's got to be Justin Ross. J- just because, like, if you're a receiver, it's got to be yards after the catch. Yeah. And I think he's the one player. And, and highlight real plays. Right. Yeah. I mean both. TL and Justin Ross, kind of jokes aside, made jaws drop around the country coming out of that national championship game. So uh, I think just from like a perception and, you know, perception is everything standpoint, they're both set up really well. Well, and even T. Higgins, I mean, let's not forget how great of a wide receiver is he is. I mean, he could stand in the offseason to get a little bit more upper body strength so he can be more physical. 
um, on the line and get some more separation. Justin Ross is really good at that this year, but um, I mean, he's another phenomenal talent, a wide receiver. I, I think, I mean, it's going to rival Nuke and Sammy being on the field at the same time is the best right. combo of Clemson wide receivers. Let's just get a Heisman though. Cause that's the last thing South Carolina fans have yeah. over Clemson. Well, I think we need two. We need one of them. That's fair. Yeah. So let's go Etienne and Lawrence. <laughs> Um, and we'll end our our Watsons this year with the C.J. Spiller Lifetime Achievement Award. Essentially, this is an opportunity to recognize, be it a senior or you know a three or a four year player, that we want to acknowledge the contributions of their career. Cody, I'm going to call BS on the fact <laughs> that you're picking four guys here because obviously they're all great. I'm, I'm calling BS if you just picked one. At, <laughs> I'm going to say I am going to pick one, and I think he stands head and shoulders above when I factor in a bunch of different aspects of contribution. Let me make the case for Christian Wilkins. He was not a four-year starter, but he was a four-year impact player and disruptor. He, across the course of his career, did so and took one for the team, moving from his natural position of the three-technique defensive tackle, moved out to defensive end and only had an All-American season and led us to a national championship. Um, beyond that, his contributions on special teams and offense were great and led to some of the best highlight plays, the best yelping plays um, in recent memory. But really, his contributions also came as the face of this program, one of the best celebrations that we've had in the national championship two years ago, um, and what he meant to Trevor Lawrence, taking the starting position, taking him under his wing. He actually took Deion Kane under his wing after um, he missed the playoff due to a drug test. Those guys roomed together in the summer. My Watson here goes to Christian Wilkins. Are we going to read off all of Cody's names, or do we not have that much we'll time? make him go last. Okay. How about that? Um, so I, of course, had Hunter Renfro. Um, you know, just to, to come on as a 160-pound balding walk-on, zero-star guy, like and he's from Myrtle Beach. Now he's about 175 pounds and, and balding. Um, just for what he's meant to this program over his entire career. And Dabo told us he was going to be a phenomenal uh, player, but nobody ever thought he was going to be the guy he was from his first championship game appearance and, and to what two touchdown catches against Alabama. And then obviously had the winning touchdown catch um, in the 16 game. And then everything he's done as clutch as he's been over his uh, four years here at Clemson. I, for me, it's a no-brainer. I got to. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily a no-brainer. He's well. A he's lot a, of these guys are well-deserving, but he's the one that I'm going to really miss him. He's the pick in your heart. Yes. So I'll go with the two guys that are, you guys didn't reference. And Sam has Mitch Hyatt. I have him as well as Cleveland Farrell. And again, call it hyperbole. And Ben, you, I know you think like the Ring of Honor. That's such a prestigious thing, and it is. But like these guys are the best. This is the golden era of Clemson football, Mitch Hyatt is probably the best left tackle. I mean, certainly four years, three championship, three championship games, two championships. When it comes day one as a, as a true freshman and start at left tackle on the blind side, the most critical position, probably on the offensive line. Right, with no depth at yeah. that position. And we we're, and virtually haven't had depth the whole time he's been here. So yeah. he's our only option. And against those Bama defensive lines that were just insane in – we never talked about Mitch Hyatt having a bad game, really. And then on the flip side, Cleveland Farrell, I think he's been, like, we've had a lot of great defensive ends dating back to Vic Beasley, Shaq Lawson, Kevin Dodd. We can go on down the list. But I think 
he's been the best. He has the best resume. His upside was the best. And another guy that's a huge will be a huge ambassador for the Clemson program. You heard his speech, uh, you know, on the podium. You know, he's like, "Come to Clemson." Yeah, I heard. Can't remember what was the reason he mentioned. Well, he was riffing on a Suge Knight uh, source oh, okay. of words speech uh, that was basically saying knocking Puffy, knocking Diddy, and his tampering in the recording. It was Puffy back then. Yeah, it's Puff Daddy. Puff Daddy. Um, but essentially, a call to. Come to Clemson, your coach is going to dance in the locker room with you. Basically, putting the culture of the program on display. Um, we'll never forget that. So, yeah, all very deserving. You know, what a what a senior class. Uh, what was it, 55 and 4 with two natties, three appearances, four league titles. Just incredible contributions. Um, honorable mention, Trevion Thompson gave us a few moments. He, has, he finishes with the most... Uh, the most games played, Vinny Clemson Tiger, the memorable dance in the locker room after the Notre Dame game with Dabo. He had some good catches good in the in the championship game too. Yeah, he, I, I was big glad they, they they incorporated him. Those could have just as well went to DeAndre Overton or someone else. But I, I like that it was Trevion Thompson, always a very willing and committed blocker too. When we in the previous years when we didn't have that. One other honorable mention, um, Kendall Joseph, yeah. five year player. Uh, when he when he was inserted into the starting lineup, two championships, um, probably a quietly one of the the best linebackers probably in Clemson history. I mean, if you look at his total production, and he, he didn't have a lot positions. of positions. He played. Yeah, he moved uh, after Bowyer left. He moved to outside, you know, playing out of position at, in, at middle linebacker, where he was where he did a, a great job. And uh, again, not a lot of depth there. So he, you look at his snap counts; they're over six hundred every year. Yeah, I mean, Tully, you mentioned the the stats. I almost think that you could give this lifetime achievement award to the entire senior class, and hell, Cody practically has. <laughs> That's right. I don't feel bad about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, what a group! I hope I hope that uh, there's another group that maybe can best on that fifty-five win record. Um, could happen, you know, if, if we get into the national championship game. Uh, four times in four years, that could be that could be an outcome. But um, yeah, pretty incredible run from this senior class, and that concludes our Watsons Awards. Um, next year, we will likely look to pad with some more interesting categories. Maybe we'll we'll do our our favorite Daboism from the year. Um, I guess this one's probably the Roy bus. That's the only really thing that there was. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. We're like wherever the heck in California we are, <laughs> that was a pretty good one too, Santa Clara. <laughs> we Great. didn't know either. We're from the Bay Area. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the Watsons. Let's wrap the show today by looking ahead at the future of the team. So certainly a lot to look forward to in terms of a great 2019 class that's already been signed. The book is not yet out yet on this class. A couple more signings may come through by the end of next month. 2020, incidentally, looks very strong with a junior day coming up. Um, everyone should take a look at that as well. But guys, when we talk about how high the 2019 team can terms of contributions i think the the early narratives the early early showings here look like the offense will be better looks like there's question marks on defense but there's no reason we can't see clemson coming back and playing in the national championship game in nola yeah it was either larry williams or paul strelo in one of their articles in tiger illustrated talking about that yes of course there's going to be a drop off on defense this year but look at our offense and look at our schedule like what opposing offenses like make you shake into your boots and what opposing teams do you think are going to be able to outscore our offense? Zero. Yeah, Sam compared it to Oklahoma, which I think that might be a little bit of an extreme. 
Um, he's not here to defend that, so I won't, I won't go off that, you know, too, too far down that rabbit hole. But, yeah, the defense will take a step back, but we've been here before. We've lost eight starters in 15, uh, or after 14 and the 15 seasons. And what did Brent Venables do? He filled it a top, I think, five defense in both years. And I don't know, top five maybe is possible, but I think certainly top 10. And if the offense can hit that ceiling, if Trevor Lawrence can, then I think it's enough. It gives you enough balance on both sides to where it's going to be a championship caliber team. Well, and what, what I what our mind gravitates to then is, look, I agree with you, Ben, on the schedule, not necessarily presenting too many challenges, including anything coming out of the Coastal for this season. You look ahead to the national powers and sort of who would you expect to be back and for a moment, I want to kind of probe a little bit. I mean, Alabama is also going to lose a decent amount on defense. Their secondary was young this year. They'll continue to be young, but um, they do lose some guys. They'll lose Quinn Williams. I think Christian Miller and Anthony Jennings um, will also be out. And I want to say one of their um, key linebackers also left and committed to the draft early, which is not something you tend to see at Alabama unless a guy has just an incredible junior year, um, which is not the case here. So, um, certainly they'll bring a lot back on offense with Tua, with Jerry Judy, and with their talented receiving core. And the running backs. Yeah, they do turn over um, a little bit from the running game, but they'll be right back where they were and on their O-line. Um, but I don't necessarily know that Bama is going to have any type of a returning talent advantage over Clemson. And they do have a lot of turnover in their coaching they do um one area they will be better in is the secondary next year a lot of those guys are really young this year but super talented players so um it's harder for the secondary young guys to come along at the same pace as a true freshman wide receiver especially the beats that that we have so um i expect them to be better in that area this year but when i look across the board like i don't yeah people are going to have alabama rank first that's just what they do it doesn't matter how well clemson plays but um I just I think about all the weapons that we have coming back on offense and who's leading that offense. And then even on the defensive side of the ball, when you look at the list of players we have that are coming back next year, there's a lot of talented guys on that list. And a lot of those guys were going to have to play this year had those three different uh, defensive linemen not come back. And so they've just got another year in the system under the tutelage of those guys and the leadership of those guys. And I think they're going to be ready to hit the ground running here in the spring. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better player. If, if You know, we did it with balance across the defensive line, just NFL players across the board. But Xavier Thomas could be the best or the most talented defensive line prospect that's ever come to Clemson, or at least in the last 10 years or so. Maybe Dequan Bowers is in, is in that conversation. But if he can kind of channel what his upside is next year, I think with Logan Rudolph, uh, God, what a motor. He's got a ton of upside. Justin Foster. Maybe K, uh, KJ Henry, we'll see. Yeah. I think there's enough pieces there, and I think the linebacking core is experienced, the secondary is experienced, where the, they'll fill a, a good defense. Yeah, I really like the look of our linebackers between Shaq Smith, Chad Smith, Skalski, Mike Jones Jr., Balen Spector. Um, all, you know, saw those guys get in and play well this year. So AJ Terrell might be the best corner in the country. Yeah. Jake Venables. Anyone? Special team stud, for sure. <laughs> And then, you know, then you got all all four safeties coming back, um, and Andrew Booth coming in in the in the in the fall. I like him and Joseph Charleston, and I, I, him and those two and Tyler Davis are guys like this year. We had some luxury freshmen who could play, but we didn't necessarily need them. I'm talking about Xavier Thomas and Justin Ross, this year will or next year we'll have to have the guys like Tyler Davis. Yeah, and so play a key role. Over, overall, like in the grand scheme of things, we're still waiting on a few guys to see if they're going to decide to transfer or come back. 
Um, and it's really on the offensive side. I think a big one of those is Garrett Williams, especially with the uh, Brent Galloway thing and how that ends up playing out. Um, same thing with Tavian Feaster. We're going to have some good running backs coming in this year, but with losing choice, and you know we like to run three, three, four guys out there, it'd be great to still have ETN, Feaster, Lynn J. Dixon. Um, and then questions around less of a concern, but Overton and Powell, are they going to stay? Are they going to go? Um, and then uh, Zach uh, Gala, Jala, how do you spell his name? Jala. Jala, yeah. Um, He's done eligibility-wise. No. Right? Or he, w- he would have been able to. If he, gets if he gets cleared, he can if, play. If he gets cleared, he can play, and he's expected to be on the two deep on the offensive line. And we talk about our thin numbers there. Like, you need all those guys that you can have, especially he's been in the program this long. Yeah, maybe sticking with the O-line. Jackson Carmen will we'll look to see how much he can develop and step into probably that left tackle role, right, Cody? Uh, so I think the coaches were pretty pleased with what they got out of him in uh, sort of coming to campus last year and um, getting in game-ready game, game ready shape. Um, got some snaps throughout the season, but we'll look, we'll look to him to take a step forward. Yeah, and then I know Hunter Renfro is leaving, but I think this is where the Cole Renfro era begins. His little brother is a tight end. Nobody knows about him. It's okay. I, I will. Know, I know the whole family tree. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so plenty to look forward to, guys. I mean, if you had to go ahead and make a way too early prediction – What's the game, single single game that gives this team the most trouble next regular season? Is it Texas A&M at home? I think so. Uh, and they've recruited well. Only, but only because the rest of the schedule sucks. I mean, because they are losing people as well. Yeah, Texas A&M loses, loses a fair amount, particularly, I think, on defense again. So um, nothing about this schedule scares me. I mean... Florida State's not going to be anything at Syracuse where they're losing Dungy. Louisville's nothing at NC State. Finley's going to be gone, right? Um, yeah, it, it essentially needs to be, and again, like we might say this is out of our system, terrible but it, schedule. it's going to need to be another hiccup game, a lack of focus game uh, against the right opponent, you know, the best, coming in hungry. The best part about the schedule next year is that we get two open dates. It's one of those years where you get two open dates, which are critical for like just kind of taking a break during the season, yeah, was, kind of getting your weekends back. When I read through the schedule the first time, we have an early like October 5th bye week for the first one. I was like, ahead once of, again, ahead of Florida State. Right. Once again, we're going to get this early bye and it's going to screw us later. That happened in 2015. But then we get that bye right before the South Carolina game. Which they also put their open date, their bye before it, that. I agree. It's nice to have the two. It's a little weird to go like eleven games and then have a bye and then have a twelfth game. But knowing we'll likely be in the ACC championship game and onto the playoff after that, it's good to get that rest there as well. Absolutely. Um, so I'm certainly predicting a, an ACC championship uh, sixth in the row for Clemson. I'm sorry, fifth in a row. Uh, getting ahead of ourselves. And I don't really know from the coastal standpoint. I mean, everyone's going to be hot to trot on Miami for next year. Virginia Tech of healthy. Um, should be better next year. Actually, a lot of people have them ranked the, the second highest ACC team. I'm all the preseason polls only have two ACC teams, Clemson, Syracuse, or Virginia Tech. Um, so, yeah, Coastal, Miami is going to be a mess with uh, Mark Rick leaving um, unexpectedly. And I don't – Pitt was just kind of a plug-in. Yeah. Duke's going to be Duke. They'll win seven games, six or seven games. Right. It's just there's There's not a lot coming out of the Coastal side that scares me too much. Really, across the board, seeing what Louisville's new coach can do, Scott Satterfield coming from App State, that'll be interesting. 
um, with like the dregs of Bobby Petrino's recruiting. Yeah, you're not going to turn any of that around. Yeah, and then um, Florida State, let's see what continues there. Um, James Blackman announced his transfer from Florida State this week. Blackman's leaving too? Blackman's leaving. So, you know, with Sam Howell already transferring to North Carolina, James Blackman going into the portal, it's likely going to be DeAndre Francois. And I don't, I didn't necessarily see him um, being Willie Taggart's, you know, best best weapon or they didn't really gel in their first season given their offensive line they just need a guy that can sit back there and get hit time after time again and not come out of the game and deandre francois is the best guy for that well and they have kendall bryles as their offensive coordinator um odd choice there odd choice at alabama of c sarkeesian coming in so um you know both those are great coaching hires if you're a clemson fan in my opinion um so things are looking good i i do expect oklahoma to be back in the thick of things next year now that they've added Jalen Hurts as their starting quarterback, grad transfer. Um, they've revamped their coaching staff on defense. They have Grinch coming in from um, Ohio State. He had a really good team at Wazoo, believe it or not, two, three years ago um, on defense. So we'll see how long they're going to be a tire fire on defense at Oklahoma. But I certainly expect them to be in that kind of one loss, Big 12 champion back in the thick of things. I'm not buying the Jalen Hurts I'm not either. Uh, ability to get up to the Baker Mayfield or um, Kyler Murray level. We'll see. That will be very fun to watch, though, because we know what Jalen Hurts is capable of. So you'll really get a good barometer for what Lincoln Riley is capable of as an offensive mind. Um, I think Georgia is – they're they're ascending. I think this will be their best offense, amazing offensive line. Um, their defense is starting to tighten up, and that's Kirby Smart's – it's what he does. So that's – I think we have some formidable competition next year. As in getting into the playoffs, not in the regular season schedule. No, no, of course not. And, and Justin Fields, we'll see if he gets uh, the waiver um, for yeah. transferring to Ohio State because that'll be that'll be interesting. They have enough talent there to be a contender as well. Um, Jacob Eason is going to be the starting quarterback at UW. I don't know what they do in terms of losing some of their. They're really good on defense this year. I don't know how many of those guys are going to come back, but we're into the second and third tier right now. Yeah, once about. you start talking about the West Coast. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Is anybody still listening? Right. Um, and I don't expect Notre Dame necessarily to be back. I mean, we'll see. Um, I mean, they'll likely have another cupcake schedule. So, Well, they got six ACC games, so it's very likely. Right, exactly. Um, well, that's really all the time we had. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us, tuning into our season recap show. Life is good if you're a Clemson fan. I'm really in the glory days right now could be on to the start of the continuation of a golden decade um, so you know best is still yet to come let's hope uh, it was really fun to kind of recap this season and give out our watson awards here we hope you enjoyed it too we'll be back at you guys with a couple of interview shows coming up we're going to definitely do a recruiting breakdown once the signing period ends and i imagine you and sam are going to do a basketball show coming up here soon yep now that we're in the middle of acc play so that'll be great um, we appreciate everyone tuning in. Hey, hey, don't don't forget to mention uh, Bama Dozer. Bama Dozer, we're part working two. on part two or part two of this year. The, yeah. the Natty recap. We'll hold him accountable to come uh, back on. Can't wait for that. Um, and just in general, really appreciate all the listens and all the love and support you guys have given us over the years, and especially recently. Um, you know where to follow us. You know where to find us and subscribe. So please do that. And please, if you haven't, find some time to leave us a review on iTunes. Um, good way to give back to the podcast and with that and as always thanks for tuning in and go tigers